Although the date of Easter has passed, for the believer in Jesus Christ, um, resurrection is experienced every moment of every day, year-round. So our commune series, our Easter series, uh, continues today in a message entitled The Cup. And as we begin, I have prayed for you, and I, I just am, beg the Lord that, that we would connect and be able to attend and be able to take the amazing nature of his word and the message from his word into our minds and hearts today. You know, almost 2,000 years ago, Jesus gathered with his disciples to eat what was to be his final meal before the cross. That's what we've been looking at, asking the question, where did communion come from? And in Luke twenty-two fifteen, he told the 12, I've eagerly desired to, to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And that just captured me this week, this eager desire that Jesus had in that context I mean, think about it for Jesus with every second ticking toward a brutal scourging that just shredded his flesh and piercing nails pounded into and through his tender flesh and excruciating breath after excruciating breath with all his weight hanging from the nails in his wrists and those same nails chafing against the nerve that runs between the two bones of the, the lower arm sending lightning bolts of pain throughout his body. And all of his frame bearing down on the nails through his feet and ankles just to pull just a little bit of air into his burning lungs, staying alive, a living death, long enough to accomplish the Father's plan, drinking in the foul taste of the sin of the world so that he could initiate the kingdom and gain our entrance into it. And all that with his enemies looking on, just gloating. Gloating in the midst of his pain. And with the Roman soldiers who do this all the time, they could care less. They cared very little. They're just performing another gruesome day at the office for them. They were executioners. That's what they did. And the combination of hatred that day and complacency that surrounded Jesus at the cross, it, it must have been like the most grotesque exhibition of the, of the heart of man that the world had ever seen. And what of those that Jesus had just shared the Passover with? What about them? It was the evening before. They just ate the meal together while they were long gone. Long gone. Those whose feet Jesus had humbly and lovingly washed, those same feet had run away. Yet, yet just a few hours before this ugliness, here's Jesus, your Savior, saying to the twelve, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus' eager desire to commune with and to teach his disciples in this way of the Passover, that sort of reminds me of Hebrews 12 too, where, where we're encouraged to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the, you know it, who for, say it with me, the joy set 
before him endured the cross. Jesus had a, had a joy that was set in his mind. He looked, he looked at the opportunity that he had on this night at this Passover meal, and he looked at the future of it. He looked beyond the pain that he was about to face. And boy, can, can we learn from that. You see, he thought about truth and glory. He did not focus on the pain and the suffering. Now, make no mistake, the pain was very real, and it was unmuted. There was no mercy from God or man on Jesus at the cross. He drank it all to the dregs. And its physical and relational pain brought about even sweating drops of blood in the garden that night as Jesus had wrestled with it all in prayer. That's a rare physiological condition called hematidrosis. It's a real thing. It's, your heart almost explodes in that condition. But here is Jesus at the Last Supper and his eagerness, that word just grabs me in the context of it all. His eagerness is for his disciples and what they're going to learn and what they're going to take forward from his teaching on this night. And I wonder if you and I, can we connect with that? Can we, can we learn from that? It's really Jesus doing what, what 2 Corinthians, I think it is 2 Corinthians 10 says, taking every thought captive. What is Jesus seeing as he's about to sit down at the Passover meal? He sees opportunity and he sees a future, a glorious future. And that is what his mindset is on that night. It's amazing. Now, last week we pointed out that the Passover has a very particular order, a, a routine of events and activities that are, that are spelled out and followed every year in Jewish homes as they celebrate that event. And each activity is used to teach and remind participants, especially the young children. It's the way that God said to pass this along, to show them how much I loved them and how I delivered them and how I, I formed my people. And Jesus that night, he changed the Passover. It had been going on for 1,500 years. He didn't change the order, not the Seder, but he changed the meaning. As he went through, actually, he didn't change it. He revealed it. He revealed the full meaning. As he went through that order with the disciples that night, he taught them and he pointed to himself as the fulfillment of the Passover. And I said last night, the more you understand the Passover, the better you're going to understand and grow to love Jesus Christ. He was the lamb. His blood, his was the blood. He was the unleavened bread. The Passover, you see, the Passover is the gospel in its primitive form. Take that and hang it on the wall in your office. The Passover is the gospel in its primitive form. And the better you understand the Passover, the better you'll understand the gospel. And the better you understand the gospel, the better you'll understand your faith and your life that expresses your faith. Now, last week, we saw this incredible symbol of the afikomen. 
It's that broken piece of unleavened bread that's, that's wrapped in linen, and then it's hidden away. And traditionally, after supper, a child in the family went in search of that afikomen. And when it was found, the leader of the Passover Seder, he broke it and shared it with all the family that was present. Listen, Jesus, I believe, took that afikomen the night of the Last Supper. That was the communion bread. When he said, this is my body given for you, do this in remembrance of me. And apparently this change or this, this emphasis, this fulfillment that Jesus made pointing to himself was right at the end of the Passover meal. That's significant. And we know this because he had just done the communion thing with the bread and the very next verse, verse 20 of Luke 22 says, in the same way, after the supper, the afikomen being the very last thing eaten of the meal, after the supper he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. This is the communion cup right here. So today, we move after the Passover meal, after the afikomen to the cup. And we're asking this question, where did the communion cup that we drink once a month, at least in our church, in our assembly, and we celebrate that in remembrance of Christ, where did that come from? That's the question we're seeking. And let me tell you something right now. To understand the answer to that question could not only change your life, it could and it should change your eternity, your eternal destiny. Let's talk about the cup and the Passover, the communion cup and the Passover. Now we know this cup, this cup happened that night with Jesus and the disciples, right after the meal. We've already seen that. So the question is this. In the Passover Seder, what is the 11th element, the 11th activity of the Seder, the order, that happens right after the meal? The meal is the 10th. The afikomen, the bread, is the last element of the meal so what's the 11th? If we can answer that question, that'll help us understand the cup. And to do that, to answer that question, we need to first understand some things more broadly about the Passover as a whole. You see, in the course of the Passover Seder, there are actually four, count them, four cups that are drunk. Four times the activity is to pick up the cup and take a drink that symbolizes a specific thing in the Passover. And those four things are all based on Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. You can turn there in your Bibles if you have it. Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. The four cups correspond to the four things that God did in bringing Israel out of Egypt. Here's what God said. He's speaking to Moses to tell the Israelites. It says in Exodus 6 and verse 6, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will, are you ready? First cup, bring you 
out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will, second cup, free you from being slaves to them. That's the second cup of the Passover, based on those words. Third cup, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. Fourth cup, verse 7, I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. So I'll bring you out, I'll free you from being slaves, I will redeem you, and I will take you as my own. Those four things, that's what these four cups of the Passover that Jews have celebrated ever since 1,500 years before Jesus, and they still do it today, those four cups are based on those verses. Exodus 6, verses 6 and 7. Let's go through them one at a time and take a deeper look at them. Cup number one is the cup of sanctification. Say that with me. I can't hear you. Sanctification. Of course I can't hear you. I'm just kidding. Cup of sanctification. Say it. That's a familiar word, sanctification. That's Exodus 6, 6. I will bring you out is how it's translated into English. Sanctification. Many of you know this. It simply means to be set apart, to be set apart. Uh, I'm trying to think of an example of that. When we set, my dad mug is an example. That's my mug. That's what I use to, to stay hydrated. It's set apart. It's mine. Now, I will share it once in a while with my grandkids, certainly not in the COVID crisis, but um, I have been known to give them a sip out of my dad mug. It's set apart. Why, is, why do I use that? Why is that set apart for me? Because I like what the scriptures say about being dad, and it, and it uh, speaks to me. It challenges me to be better as a, as a follower of Christ than I am, to be a dad, to be a father, and it reminds me of my heavenly father. That's why I drink from this cup. This cup is set apart for me because of that. As a matter of fact, I'm going to take a drink right now. Now, this cup, not this one, the one in Exodus, the one in the Passover, the one that Jesus drank with his disciples, or the, the one, the first cup of the Seder. This cup is drunk at the very beginning of the celebration of the Passover Seder right after the opening prayer, the opening benediction. And the reality is, 3,500 years ago, God set apart these slaves, that's what they were, slaves in Egypt, as his chosen people. What did he set them apart for? To relate with him, according to his self-revealing law that he gave them later at Mount Sinai. Think of the Ten Commandments. That's kind of a summary of it. And thus, to show his glory and his love to the entire world through this group of people. God had set them apart for this purpose. And the world in that day, the rest of the world, the cultures of the world, it was full of polytheistic, demon-worshipping peoples and cultures. Demons posing as the god of the sun, or, or the god of the river, or the god of fertility, or the god of love, and on and on it went. Almost every culture worshipped all sorts of different small g gods, and behind them, in many cases, were demon activity. Monotheism, one God, the true creator God, that was reaching out to the, to the Israelite slaves, that was unheard of in that day. 
So here is God reaching out in truth and love to and through the lowest group of all, a nation of slaves, to give the world a chance to know the truth. Listen, if you're hearing my voice right now and you do not know for sure Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you, my friend, are in complete bondage to sin and death. And I want you to know that God loves you and he still today sets slaves free. You must believe on Christ and apply his blood to the doorpost of your heart because Jesus' blood welcomes God's presence into your heart and life as his home. That's what you were made for, period. And to live that out because it's God alone that sets apart his people from the clutches of Pharaoh so they can freely serve him. That's the first cup, the cup of sanctification based on Exodus 6.6. Let's do the second cup. The second cup is the cup of deliverance. Sometimes it's called the cup of plagues. Sometimes it's called the cup of judgment. And this cup, again, goes all the way back to Egypt and the Israelites. It remembers the way that God defeated, listen to my words, listen, he defeated all the false gods of Egypt. He wasn't just defeating Egypt and the Egyptian people. The gods they worshipped, God put his finger on each one and said, watch this. And he went after them to show not just the Israelites who he was, but the Egyptians as well. Each plague targeted a demon god of the Egyptians. And this second cup of the Passover is, happens at the conclusion of the retelling of the entire Passover story. And it's really quite dramatic in the Seder. When, when at Passover, this cup, just before it's drunk, each plague is remembered by the dipping of a finger into that cup of juice and wine, and a drop of wine falls from the finger onto the Passover plate while that particular plague is remembered. And words are spoken to describe it. That's the cup of deliverance. And this cup happens in the Seder, in the order, right after the Afikoman was hidden away, way back in step four. Right after they hid that thing comes the cup of deliverance. So the second cup, the cup of deliverance is drunk. At, I'll, I'll just describe it as step five in the order of the Seder. Now, remember, last week we taught that the meal was the uh, tenth activity of the Seder. So we're clear back at step five is the cup of deliverance. We've done two cups so far. It started off with the cup of sanctification. Step five in the Seder is the cup of deliverance. And again, from last week, the afikoman is found and it's shared at the very end of the meal. That's step 10. I believe this afikoman was what Jesus used to point to his soon broken body. That was the communion bread, the afikoman. Right after the sharing of the afikoman, step 10, at the end of the meal, 
is the 11th element of Passover. It's the third cup. We've had the cup of sanctification. We've had the cup of deliverance. The third cup, listen to me now, is the cup of redemption. It's based on Exodus 6. I will redeem you. This, I believe, as do many, was the communion cup that Jesus instituted that night of the Last Supper. And it is God's perfect wisdom to orchestrate this whole thing. Because the word redeem in the Old Testament Hebrew is gawal, and it means to redeem according to the oriental law of kinship. It's to buy back is what it literally means. It means to be the next of kin and as such to buy back a relative's property or to marry his widow. This is a concept we're not as familiar with today. If you read the book of Ruth, you'll see it in there. As Boaz bought the widow Ruth and made her his wife, he bought her back out of her widowhood. And see, this is an intensely financial term, redemption, because you pay the price for that as next of kin, but it's also very relational. So it's financial and it's relational. It's costly and it's intimate. Listen, biblical theology, Adam died when he chose Eve over God back in Genesis 3. And he needed desperately the next of kin to redeem him, to buy that relationship back, that relationship with God. But no human being could do that because Adam's death had affected all others, all of his offspring. Adam's next of kin was in the same shape he was. No one could redeem him back to life with God because all were in Adam's same condition until Jesus This is why God the Son had to become a man, a next of kin, a human being. And it's also why he did that at Christmas time, Christmas theology, in the way that he did, conceived of the Holy Spirit. If he'd been born with Joseph as his biological father, he would have inherited Adam's same condition and could redeem no one. God the Son had to become a man, a human being, because then and only then was Jesus next of kin to the human race so he could buy them back. See, it all fits. And God used the old covenant with Israel and the sacrificial lamb, its blood on the door to their houses. We saw that last week. The the blood as a sign not to keep the death angel out, but to welcome God into their home. And God used that picture to challenge you and I today as to the true lamb who would redeem you, your kinsman redeemer, and the true blood, the blood of Christ. So this third cup, the cup of redemption, Exodus 6, I will redeem you the cup that symbolized the blood that bought the Israelites out of Egypt, Jesus is saying to them that night, that all points to me, to my blood 
Luke 22, 20, in the same way, after the supper, 11th element of the Passover, he took the cup, the cup of redemption, saying, this cup, its true meaning, is the new covenant in my blood. It's not the blood of a lamb. The Bible's very clear on that. The blood of lambs and goats can't, can't remit sin. It's my blood which is poured out for you. Do you see it? Are you listening? God wound these events really tight in time and space so you and I could wow before him. If you've been listening, I hope you're wowing before him. But the question is, will you bow before him? Will you bow before him saying, it must be true. It must be true. Only God could put this together over thousands of, of years of history. Jesus must have been the God-man, God's son, and he must have died. He must have risen from the grave. It's true. And I am accountable, and you are accountable to this message, this one right here. I cannot, you cannot ignore God's love for you and his call on your life anymore. I would be a fool to try to just go, in, go on as I was before. I knew this, and you would be too. Listen, he who has ears to hear, Jesus said that all the time to people. You got ears, you're hearing, but are you listening Listen to Matthew. It gets better. This is, we're just scratching the surface. Listen. Matthew 26. This is Matthew's account. We've been in Luke. Luke's account. Matthew 26 records the same event this way. This is how Matthew wrote of it. Then he, Jesus, took the cup. He gave thanks and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of of sins. That much we know based on Luke's account. Verse 29. Matthew adds a little bit more of what Jesus said that night. He says, here's Jesus continuing. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And folks, the rest is history. The arrest, the betrayal, the arrest, the, the phony trial, the hearing before Pilate, the cross, it is finished. Taking him down from the cross, putting him in Joseph's tomb, the guards, the angels, the resurrection. The rest is history. But I have a question. How many cups were there in the Passover Seder? We said there were four. What about the fourth cup? Jesus intentionally, intentionally, and he said it, I'm, I'm not going to drink the fourth cup. He didn't put it that way. He said, I'm not going to drink the fruit of the vine again. 
He did not drink the fourth cup of the Passover that night. That is so significant. He basically said, we're going to save the fourth cup for later. When the kingdom of God is fulfilled. See, right, right then, that night, Jesus is just preparing for the entrance into the kingdom of God. How people can enter. First message he ever preached. He told, told us how he could enter. Repent and believe. But when the kingdom of God is fulfilled, when I return as king, see, it makes total sense. What's the fourth cup? I love... The, our opening song in worship today. Didn't it, didn't it have the word uh, hallelujah in it, right? What's the fourth cup? Well, it's called the cup of praise. In Hebrew, it is called the Hallel. This cup is called the Hallel. And that is the root word where we get hallelujah from. The fourth cup, the Hallel, the cup of praise, is based on Exodus 6, 7. We already saw that passage. I will take you as my own people. I will be your God. Listen, folks, God's desire since the beginning has always been to restore us, which means he has to deal with our sin because we can't deal with it, to restore us and then to dwell with us for eternity. That's always been his desire. I'm going to say that again. God's desire has always been to restore us, which means he has to deal with our sin. That's what Jesus is all about. To restore us and then to dwell with us for eternity. That's my destiny. No matter what happens on this earth, if I die of COVID-19 or whatever gets me, and whenever that is, my destiny is I'm going to dwell with God for, for eternity. I hope that's your destiny as well, and I hope you are rock-solid certain of that based on the authority of God's Word. Now, if I had an outline, which I don't, we usually put an outline in the bulletin, this last point would be called between the communion cups. You see, the idea that Jesus said, I'm going to wait to drink the fourth cup until the kingdom's fulfilled means that in a way... In a way, that Passover that night never ended. And we're living as the church, the ecclesia, the called out of Christ. We're living in, in the, the same, in the time between, between those two cups, between the third and the fourth cup of the Last Supper. We live in the age of redemption, the cup of redemption. And we're awaiting the age of praise, the cup of praise. And if you know you're some little bit more about theology, you know that there's this thing called the wedding supper of the Lamb that awaits us. And I think at that supper, we're going to drink that fourth cup in the presence of Jesus Christ. Our faith is going to have become sight. He's going to be right there with us. And the thing that won't be there is our sin. We don't have to contend with that anymore. We're going to be whole. And I think it's worth 
thinking about that the image of drinking from a cup, you, you see that a lot throughout the Bible. Drinking from a cup. It's symbolic, listen to me now, of both. It can be a blessing, a cup of blessing, but it can also be a cup of judgment in Scripture. Uh, for example, remember Jesus praying in the garden later on that night after the, the Last Supper, Luke 22. He said, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. He was talking about his, his suffering, his passion, his, his death. Take this cup. It was a cup of judgment. God was going to pour out on Christ the judgment that my sin deserved. But on the other hand, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, the, the cup of blessing which we bless. Is it not the communion of the cup of Christ? See, there's a cup of blessing we see in Scripture, but there's also a cup of judgment. Proverbs 4.17, another example. Speaking of the wicked, the, the Solomon said they eat the bread of of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. So folks, knowing that there's both a cup of blessing and a cup of, of judgment, we could say right now, we could put the gospel this way, that everyone, you and I, everyone that's alive today, has, has a bread to eat and a cup to drink. Everyone. Even if you don't believe in God or this Jesus stuff or the Bible, according to the Bible, you've got a cup to drink and a bread to eat, everybody. If you surrender your life to Jesus, who created it and gave it to you to manage, then it's a cup of blessing. Because, you see, he already drank the cup of judgment for you. But if you foolishly refuse the unleavened bread of Jesus and reject the lifeblood of Jesus as your Passover lamb, then there's only one cup that remains. And you'll drink the cup of judgment for sin on your own. It, it's clear God doesn't want that. That's why he provided Christ. His word says, it's not his will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's not what he wants for you. But everybody's going to drink. Everybody's going to eat. And it's up, I want to say it's up to you, but at the same time, it's not really your decision, it's your surrender. The question is, what are you going to decide? That's not what I want to ask. It's what are you, will you surrender or will you not surrender to what God wants to do with the life that he gave you and in the life that he gave you? Will you drink the cup of judgment or the cup of blessing? And that is so tragic when people refuse to surrender to Christ because Jesus loves you so much, and he has already drank the cup of judgment down to its dregs for you. 
the cup. Commune. I hope that each of you knows by the authority of God's word that you commune with Christ. And therefore, you can enter into and experience community with the body of Christ and offer the same to everyone you meet. Let's pray. Worship team, if you'd come. Father in heaven, I... I don't know, maybe a lot of people that heard this already knew a lot of this. I, I don't know. Um, certainly not the, the greatest biblical scholar on the face of the planet. But whether it's obvious to them or not, it's, it's amazing to me that you can take these things over time and, and, and weave them together uh, like you have done. And I, I just don't know what to say. I stand. In worship. Saying wow. And Father if there's any here in my voice. Today right now. Or in the future, they come across this thing wherever, online, I don't know. Father, I'm asking that out of your great mercy and your great love for them, that, that you would help them to hear your voice, not mine, your voice, through your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, about your Son, and that in humility... They would believe and receive the gift of eternal life, the presence of your Holy Spirit, a new life with, with new desires, new direction, new purpose, new meaning than the one that they used to have of stuff or, or control or whatever it is, uh, comfort and pleasure. Father, I pray that you'd raise up a people that are revived in your church and that are newborn in this world that pursue Jesus, that they would truly, in their heart of hearts, rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. And I pray that you'd begin that work, continue that work, continue that work in my heart as well. And it's in Jesus' Beautiful name, I pray. Amen.